Let us pray once again. Draw us near, O God, especially in this hour, that indeed, that we cannot know till we cross the narrow sea. O Lord, sustain us through your power, through your spirit. Draw us to yourself. Fix our eyes upon your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray right now that you will be with me, Lord, as I open my mouth, Lord, that your Spirit will clothe my words with your intended purpose, Lord. Help us, our feeble faith, our feeble and weak and frail and often tossed to and fro. Establish us, Lord, firm in the feet of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It was both Augustine and later C.S. Lewis who arrived at the same conclusion that there is no such a thing as laws of nature. As strange as it may sound, Augustine put it this way. He says, miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. And C.S. Lewis, in his famous book on miracles, says, Miracles do not, in fact, break the laws of nature. That these giants of a Christian intellect were actually trying to answer skeptics and scientists who look with dogmatism, believe it or not, and forget the laws of nature or laws of physics are merely human attempts to describe what happens in nature. But they are not rules that somehow nature now has to obey. Because as far as we can tell, some of these laws may be universal until, like this morning, they are proven to be wrong. When you have a man, Jesus Christ, walking upon waters. And so... They're only approximations at best based on what is probable, what happens to be normally happening, but it's always open to the possibility that they turn out to actually be wrong. That there's actually one that sits above those supposed rule of the universe, the creator, the ultimate ruler of everything. And here in our text, as creator, he can decide to actually defeat them as he walks on water. Jesus Christ walks on water. John 6, 16 to 21. Last time I told you we will go to the sermon after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. I had forgotten that there is this parenthetical story in between those two uh, section of J chapter 6 of John and we want to dive in into these few verses uh, we already saw this theme of water the living water the stirring up of the waters at the pool of Bethesda now we see Jesus walking upon water that there's a principle indeed a theme in this gospel here uh, if you were with us last uh, Sunday morning we looked at Jesus fee feeding 5,000 people probably even more you see how there's a greater and more spectacular miracles before countless people. However, you remember how it ended up, did you? It ended up abruptly. Jesus left them all up 
right, right there where they wanted to make him king. Our text, verse uh, uh, 15 tells us, they wanted to make him king, but Jesus leaves the scene. And now between the miracle and what we will see next Sunday, the sermon application to the miracle, I am the bread of life, we have this description of Jesus walking on water before the disciples. And what that tells us is that what Jesus was reluctant to show to the crowd, to the false followers, He now shows that He actually is the King of the universe, okay? He gladly shows the disciples, the true followers, that while Jesus is reluctant to reveal His nature as Lord last time, He has no issue showing Himself as Lord of the water and of the sea in these brief words. That He has dominion over the water. There was something the disciples had failed to understand. Remember the questions of Philip, uh, or the, 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 the testing of the faith of Philip, right? Oh, that 200 denarius will not be enough to feed these crowds. Now there's something in the faith of the disciples that needs to be tested here. That not just parting the, uh, we saw the, the connection with Moses in the manna from heaven, but also parting the water like Moses, but he actually walks on water. Christ has indeed power over nature. So this is an astonishing story of greater and greater things about this Jesus. And remember, the focus of John is to show you the true identity of Jesus as God. That He indeed is God. And and that, therefore, is meant to build true faith in Him as your God and Savior. But you remember how this relationship between the miracle and faith is often complex. Not just in the unbelieving crowds, but even in the disciples who are struggling to make sense of things. Uh, Because again, faith is made harder by your frailty and all sort of earthly obstacles to faith. And testing needs growth in the faith, even among true disciples, true believers. Because their answer last time shows that they fail to grasp who Jesus is. And so now Jesus gives them a window to who He actually is by walking on water. In other words, Jesus intentionally has the disciples go through the storm. And He walks before them on water to reassure at least them, if the crowds do not get or catch the significance of the person of Jesus, at least them must see that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that they need to trust Him, no matter what happens around them. That in order to demonstrate to the disciples that He is indeed God on earth, He now walks upon the water. And there's two things we want to see in this story, briefly. The, the storm, in fact, is the f- first thing you see. There's a huge storm, a, a complication in the disciples' situation. Verse 16 to 18 of our text. That the disciples find themselves in a storm at night and in the middle of this lake of Galilee, okay? Night is falling, verse 16. This is, remember, the 5,000, they're in the mountain, Astounding miracle had been ended abruptly because Jesus fled from the expectations of the crowd to make him king, okay? But now evening comes. 
The disciples are there on the mountain. Jesus is gone. The crowds are gone. And the disciples cannot just sit and stay there. They wonder, what do we do next? Where is our master? So they go back from the mountain down to the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. And they go into a boat and head toward Capernaum. Now remember, the, 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 the feeding of a thousand was in Bethsaida, right? And Capernaum was on the other side of the lake. So they have to cross the lake. Because that's from where several of the disciples come from, Capernaum. And they were fishermen before they met Jesus, remember. So the other gospel witnessed that actually the Lord Jesus had sent them away and urged them to embark so that they actually the crowd could disperse, okay? That is the background to this uh, story, that he did not want the disciples to get caught in the enthusiasm of the crowds. But however, the situation without Jesus' leadership seems to be getting difficult for the disciples. They have to face this difficult crossing of the lake. It gets dark. The night comes on, and even before the storm comes, this our other gospel tells us that they actually were crossing the, the, the lake between 3 and 6 a.m. throughout the night. Matthew tells us that Jesus comes to them in the fourth watch of the night. This is in the middle of the night, nine hours. Think about it, nine hours. They are trying to cross the lake, and they're making headway painfully. Because, as we'll see, wind is against them, and uh, their sail were not running. And if you're like them, a fisherman, you know that it's not good to ride a boat in the middle of the night, in the dark. Why? Visibility. You think about Titanic. The, the way that the Titanic was destroyed is because in the middle of night, there comes an iceberg, and it crushes the, the boat. You don't know where you're headed in a boat, okay? And the atmosphere here is in this darkness is of a further testing and trial on the disciples. The text says Jesus had not come to them. Jesus, remember, was not in the boat. He had not, he had not come then to them after leaving the crowds. Remember, John is writing and he was in the boat. He wants you to know that Jesus was not with them. And so they are there in the dark. And what comes next, therefore, is even more surprising in the fact that he was not with them in the boat. They are in the darkness, okay? And the light of the world is not with them. And look what happens. There's a wind that blows. Not only it's dark, but here we, we, we go into a tempest. That adds the pressure of the disciples. The lake arose and becomes rough and stirred up. There's a great wind blowing. I mean, you know how it feels around here to be in a tornado, right? In Tennessee, when, when that happens, it's, you, you imagine, here is a lake, okay? The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below the sea level. It's uh, 150 feet deep, so it's easy to, to have a shipwreck. And you're surrounded by hills, and it made it subject to these sudden windstorms causing extremely high waves and heavy storms and remember back then these little boats of wood were of very little help against such storms so this is remember also it's not the last time that disciples get caught in a storm on this lake we know from the other gospels that uh, there's another great tempest and the waves were covering the boat uh, and you and they were threatening to sink it and just like then the disciple here are very fearful. 
they feel like they're perishing, okay? So things are going from, from bad to worse. This is a test of faith, okay? Because Jesus is not there intentionally. What do we make of this? Why is Jesus not there? Why this storm is coming to the disciples? And they have no idea where to go next. Well, Augustine tells us again that trials come to prove and to improve us as believers. What do we do when we're tossed about by worries and terrifying circumstances in our life? That your life turns into a nightmare. If you can think about small inconveniences in your life, but even major tragedies. There are waves and get rougher and rougher and you're getting more and more scared. When death comes into your family, when you're facing the darkness of a depression or everything being so gray that you even forget the light of the sun. You're so obscured by the clouds and thunders and there's hopelessness. Perhaps because of a lasting sicknesses that has come into your life. You can't see and you can't seem to make perhaps ends meet. You have difficulties at work or stress and your family becomes overwhelming beyond, precisely beyond what you can handle. And then you have the silence of God. You have no guidelines. You, you have no roadmap in this storm. And you wonder, are you going to make it? Where is your Jesus? And, and, and this might not be something short. I mean, through the night, okay? And you pray that it's only for a season. And where is God? Perhaps, friend, you have been in a, a season like this. You are currently going through a season like this. Or I'm sure one of us will get through in the near future a season like this. So let me prepare you that no matter how many years you've known the Lord, or if you're just getting to know the Lord, it doesn't matter who you are, sooner or later one of us will find ourselves in the midst of something of this nature. That will require total dependence on God, as we will see in the next point. That everyone, even a believer, has to get into deeper and newer levels of testing in our Christian walk. And maybe you can't see the Lord in those seasons like you used to in the past. His voice is not there. His guidance is not there. The truth is, friend, He has not lost sight of you. Jesus knows what He's doing here in the story. He's actually right there. God doesn't just deliver us once in our life. He does it twice or three times to prove His, His sovereignty over your life. His, His, your growth of faith through that testing. This is the way that God accomplishes His mysterious purposes. He often makes His children fall into alarming dangers like here. I was thinking about the hymn, some through the waters, some through the flood, but all through the blood. So that you can better and more familiarly recognize Him when, when He comes into the deliverance that you are expecting. It's easy to say, friends, that we believe in the sovereignty of God when all is well and the sea is calm. But what about when the world collapses before your feet? Are you still going to believe in the sovereignty of God? When the wind blows through your sails and rain falls in your face and you're lost at sea, are you going to trust Him? God is to show Himself to be God here over this situation precisely because it is out of the disciples' control. And I also know that there are times 
the consequences of our unwillingness to listen to the Lord and the warming, warnings that He may send us through the calm waters actually introduce a brokenness and a storm that the Lord seeks to catch your attention. There's some lessons you need to learn. And that lesson, friend, is to turn to Him in faith. To rely upon Him as the true Son of God. Trusting, as we'll see next point, that He has a sustaining power to provide by virtue of who He is. Jesus Christ is God. Anybody be a sign that Jesus has not complete rule over one's life if you live and are enslaved, a constant anxieties all the time. I think about John Wesley who was going through the, the ocean to get to Georgia, okay, from England. And there was this great storm. He was not saved, okay, but he was a pastor, but he was not saved yet. And there he is in these storms and he's like, I'm going to die and I'm afraid. I don't know what comes next. And there was a group of Moravian brothers, okay? And they were singing hymns in the middle of the storm. He looks at their face. These guys have something that I don't have. They have a peace. And he realizes that all of his claims to Christianity, or even going to foreign lands to preach to the Indians was empty. He did not have that true, lasting faith. When you're only focused on how you humanly handle things, that you're in charge while you fail to realize that your life has no compass, friend, in this storm. Jesus is trying to urge you to let go of trying to control things in your life. That you're not supposed to seek to control, to surrender to His work, His providence on your behalf. To leave your burdens, friend, at the feet of His cross. That you were never meant to carry those burdens of anxieties on your own strength. That you bow to Him as Lord and let Him make you walk on these waters, we'll see. But it requires trust, no matter the storm, how, how, no matter how loud the thunders, no matter how tall the waves might get. You let God and the promises of His Word take charge. And that is the beauty of our next point, verse 19 to 21. Now Jesus comes in the middle of this storm, this night, these storms, and He comes and shocks the disciples first. By walking on water. And there's two things he does. He, he first, he frightens them. I mean, the, the disciples are f afraid of Jesus, actually, verse 19. They're uh, road roughly three to four miles, okay? There's no point for us now in the middle of the storm to go back to Beth Bethsaida, okay? We're stuck in the middle of this lake trying to move forward at night in the middle of a storm. We are in desperate need of help. They, the disciples are completely at their wits' ends here. And what do you think they see? They caught sight of Jesus. Some translation have it. Jesus, there in the water, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of the raging waves, and there stands Jesus. He's not in another boat, but our text says he's walking on the sea. He is walking on the lake, literally on the surface of the water, over the water, as if this was a pavement to the feet of the Creator. And the point is, he is not drowning. Now, this would have appeared to them like a mirage in the desert or an unrealistic scene on the horizon, which causes a shocking reaction because it appears so real. 
And the first thing I notice here is that it always comes down, friend, to Jesus having to intervene in the storm when you cannot get away from the situation. That Jesus has to come and lift your mind above the trial by walking upon it. Notice there's nothing in the story, first of all, about removing trials or giving you an easy pass or just mustering up your own self-confidence through the trial. It's everything to do uh, uh, to, to your weakness, to your helplessness, to the fact that you can do nothing without Him. And God's strength has the only solution. Overcoming by going through this, by looking to Jesus, by looking to His person, looking to His words. I hope you see here there's more to the story than a self-help for coping with your personal challenges in life. The point here is, who is this man? Who is Jesus? That even the wind and the sea obey him. That either calms the storm with a word or walks upon it. Showing that either way he's the creator. That he's more than a man. That he is God. And no one walks, friends. No one walks on water, okay? Unless the water is frozen or there are rocks underneath. I remember when I was in, uh, in my hometown. We have a lake. I grew up next to a lake. And it was so cold that winter and it froze. And me and my brother were able to walk. On that front. But even there, there were warning signs telling you, if you step further, you're going to sink down because of the ice that falls. Yet you cannot explain away this miracle by saying that this was some hallucination, okay? Or that Jesus was calling them from the shores. And No, this is really happened. But why would the disciples be terrified? We, we, we wonder. And we look at the text. And he was drawing near the boat. In fact, we get from that that Jesus meant to pass by them, other Gospels tell us. Right there where the disciples were, He saw them in their struggle and came there to show to them His power intentionally so that in fact He is the Son of God. But the disciples, our text says, were understandably afraid, frightened, terrified, apprehensive. I mean, they never seen a man walk on water. What is this? They almost scare and senseless at this point in the middle of the night. Another gospel tells us that it was so scary because they initially thought that it was a ghost. I mean, this, what is this? They're in the dark and surrounded by waves, wind and rain. Their, their initial thought, it's not Jesus, but some night spirit going around at night. I mean, what would you have done if you were in that situation? That you have Jesus, the one you have been following for years by now. And yes, you witness a series of miracles, particularly the one we saw last week. But all of a sudden, he brings things to a whole new level. And there, he walks on water. And just like Moses, he just doesn't give us manna from heaven, but even parts the water. Now, he, now, he even walks upon these waters. And in fact, the disciples, friends, should have immediately recognized it was Jesus. Because they already saw the power of him. After the miracles he did... But they get scared and fail to realize over and over. This will be a problem continuously in the Gospels. They fail to realize over and over that He was God. Notice also, coming face to face with God, friends. That's another thing we see here. It's a scary thing. When you see God's power at work before your eyes, it is a fear fearful thing. It's a scary and uneasy thing for creatures. Which anytime you have someone in Scripture... Coming face to face with God, he is terrified, rightly so. He leads to consternation and dread. 
that you approach the living God through Jesus. And that doesn't mean it's an easy thing. It's, it, it brings reverence. It brings realization that this is the creator, that, it's, that he controls creation, okay? There is a right sense of fear before none other than the creator. And I realize at this point that the skeptics may go, okay, this is impossible, okay? I follow you until now as I read this gospel, but that has to be a fairy tale that was added by the disciples uh, to, do, to the historical Jesus, quote-unquote, right? Perhaps this was just an hallucination, okay? Not so, friend. Multiple gospel witness to this account that is in keeping to the supernatural nature of who Jesus is, which is not divorce. You cannot divorce it from his life. And, and look at, at the fact that here, the authors even write down their own doubts here. They thought it was a ghost. They, they failed to believe over and over and again. And if you're trying to convince someone that, of something that is fake, you never do that. When you try to make up a story, you always put yourself in a good light. But here the disciples show all of their weaknesses. What many fail to grasp is that the Gospels were never intended for us to just declare Jesus as a great teacher. And that's it. Just another, you know, form of religion. No, He is indeed God on earth. Unlike any other teacher on earth, any other religion, He is part of the same triune God. Okay, the triune God that you find in Genesis 1 hovering over the water, the Holy Spirit. Let us make this and that together with the Father and Spirit. Jesus is God. And if God comes on earth, He definitely can break those supposed laws of what is by us mere mortal considered as laws of nature. We don't know nothing of what it means like the creator of the universe to actually create things out of nothing. When we do something as humans, we always use things that already exist. But God can, because He's the Creator. And so what is considered as humanly or scientifically possible is out of the question. This is, this is God, friends. And look at the comfort, the, the last words of verse 20 and 21 of Jesus. Okay, They are frightened. They are rightly terrified. But here comes Jesus with words of comfort. In contrast to their fear, he addresses them with a reassuring voice. And he says, it is I. I am he. It's me. I'm here. Jesus, I am not a ghost, but the I am who I am. That is the word in Greek, the God who controls the waters. And he says, do not be afraid. Stop being frightened. It's all right. As if Jesus is there, then they have... And we have, or should have, no reason to fear neither the storm, neither the surprising action, nor the waves or the winds around us. And there, verse 21, the disciples willingly received Him. Just as they wanted to take Him into the boat. And Matthew tells us of, at this point of a detail, okay, that, that Peter makes an attempt now. Before they get, get him into the boat. Peter makes an attempt to get out of the boat and walk toward Jesus. However, we know from that story that he then gets confused. He looks at the wave and he gets scared again and he drowns. And uh, to which Jesus picks him up and replies, why did you doubt? Which tells you the whole purpose of this story is again the mustering, the, the strengthening, the, the, the testing of the faith of the disciples. And uh, our text ends by immediately the boats reached the 
the shores, which means the exact spot where they were headed to. That in the midst of all this chaotic experience, in the midst of all this season, God was actually controlling divinely and completely to the last minute. So that is the beauty of the reassuring intervention of Jesus, the the peaceful voice of Jesus. Do not be afraid. I'm here to get you through this. That Jesus has not forgotten us, okay? He knew that this was coming. And he was about to pass that way. He enters into our darkness. He calms the storm. And he says, it is I. I am that I am. Which means Christ's presence alone is the ground of all our confidence. That even though we may have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because he is with us. And this means to get actually closer and closer to, to Jesus through that. That if Jesus is within the boat, if he's coming near the boat, showing us that he's walking above the trial and that he is with us, if he grabs unto us, we have nothing to fear. Though the whole world should collapse under our feet. So brothers and sisters, resolve to trust the Lord on whatever matter you face. You have faced and you look back about that providence or you will have to face in the near future. You resolve to do what is right, even if costly. One thing that might be encouraging, friend, whenever you might find yourself in a situation of despair like this, read biographies of Christians, okay? Read what story of godly men and women who have been gone before us, Christians that we actually love and admire. But there are things about that. We must realize things about their life that we're not the first, that we have gone through testings and storms. And in fact, like Peter, Yes, we might even be called to join in the water and walk with Jesus upon this water. Believe it or not, being able to perform things that only He can do. And that is the sense of the word that Jesus will say in John 10, 34. You are God's. Not that we become divine or absorbed to deity. That is a heresy of the Mormons or the Word of Faith movement. That is actually showing the the lie of the snake that tells to Eve, you are like God. No, you, we, we will never be killed. Now, what is in view here, that when you become a child of God, a conversion, you, you're born again, you receive the Spirit, you, you are, yes, have eternal life, but also that according to His divine power at work within you, He has given you all things for Christian growth, for godliness, and you become, in such sense, what Second Peter 1, 4 says, partakers of the divine nature. Not that you become divine, because that will be heresy, okay? But that you share the power, that you conform to Christ's image, that indeed walks on water here. That His image of God in you gets renewed. And that's why Jesus says, whoever believes in me, will do works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. May we believe these words as Theta Baptist Church. So you read these biographies, as I said, of believers who came before you, and realize precisely those men and women you admire because they were used by God in the past, they walked upon waters themselves. Not literally, but figuratively. When you look at their lives, they did not sink. Not because of their strength, but because of the upholding power of God. Let me give you some examples. And we go through scriptures here. You, you think of Joseph. 
He was almost killed by his brothers and he was sent as a slave to Egypt, forgotten in a jail and accused falsely by Potiphar's wife. Only to then being brought by the, the power of God to become the greatest man in Egypt. And Daniel, his friends, first they go into a fire furnace, then they're thrown into the lion's den. Okay? That is walking in water. Only to be res rescued by God. Miraculously. In both occasions, you think about the Apostle Paul. I mean, that man went through almost anything. Brought almost to death almost all of the time. Abundant in stripes, he tells us in Corinthians. Prisons, rods, stoned, shipwrecked many times. Perils of waters. Uh, persecuted by countrymen, Gentiles in cities, by false brethren. Sleepless, naked, and yet sustained by God's sufficient grace. Throughout the whole life until it was the appointed time that he will die as a martyr. And what about Christian history? Not just the scripture. I think of uh, in, during the Middle Ages, John Wycliffe, he was a preacher in England. And he wanted the people to have the Bible translated into, in their own language. And he was sovereignly able to keep ministering until his death. I think of Martin Luther. That man was... Standing up for God's word in front of the German emperor of the time. And the Catholic cardinals who were ready to kill him. Okay, And by God's sovereign sustaining power. He was kept from being arrested after the trial. I think of here in the south. It was Stonewall Jackson. Okay, He was a confederate general in the civil war. And got his name Stonewall. He was a Calvinist by the way. And he, he, he got his name because he was not shaken in battle. Because... Of his belief in the sovereignty of God over his life. That a bomb can, can crush him on the rest, left or the side. And he wouldn't move. I think of our missionary John Patton. Who was a Presbyterian minister in the, in the New Guinea. Okay? He survived being killed by cannibals. Okay? They did all sort of things to that man. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to so many times. And by the power of God. He was able to be kept. These and other examples, friends, are believers who were able to walk on water. Or waters. And that, so let, let this be your encouragement. If you're in Christ, yes, you will have to encounter various storms. Yes, you could be like Peter, even me, taking Jesus and walk on the waters of yourself. Now, what does that look like? I went to the Sea of Galilee when, back in the days, and I was with this Catholic group of people, and they were like, Oh, let's walk on the sea. Maybe we'll walk on water. I says, no, no, you're missing the whole point. This is not some magic superstitious thing about the waters. The point is the presence of Christ. And through faith in Christ, in His Word, which looks like, let me give you an example of what it looks like for you. That if someone was to observe your life outwardly, it wouldn't make sense to them unless God supernaturally got you through it. And that you stand firm in Christ. And this, friends, walking in water does not just require, okay, I'm just going to, it doesn't require just a superficial faith. It requires feet completely firm in God's word. And this is a test I'm telling you. That many, many, many sadly have not endured. And they have drowned with all their intentions to follow the so-called savior, the false professors of religion, 
They presumed with their heavy body to walk on water, but really they did not have any true sight of the Savior, of His words, and understanding of what true genuine faith is, and they sank under the weight of their sin. That's why Isaiah 7, 9 says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so that means for you and me, that at this time, I'm like, I'm like the rest of people around you, you will going to look to Jesus. You are going to depend on His Word. You seek Him in prayer more and more, especially through that season. You'll get closer actually and closer through Jesus as you look to and fix your eyes on Him. Not shaken by waves of false doctrine, not shaken by waves of fleshly passion, not shaken by any other thing or disaster that threaten and frighten other people. The only way you can, and I can stand and walk in this circumstance, is not by our power, it's not by our strength, it's by turning our eyes off from ourselves and look to Jesus Christ. Yet we must not doubt like Peter, okay? And there's such a thing as a Christian, you, you rightly and boldly want to join Jesus in the water, but then you leave, leave off fixing your eyes on Jesus. It's like your life started to take another pattern. And you start to fear the waves. You sink more and more and more doubts invade your mind. And despite that, Jesus graciously, despite all this, Jesus graciously catches you. And he, and he draws you back. But remember his promise. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. So the secret, friend, is to stand firm in this storm is to keep your eyes on Christ and his words. That, that is the sweet assurance of the true child of God, okay? That you have this well-loved voice of the Savior toward you. It is I, do not be afraid. That yes, He challenges you in your faith, like the disciples. That faith might be very little at times. And we get afraid and we get fearful. And that there's then Jesus in the other storm that is recorded in the other Gospels, that He is actually sleeping. The disciples found Him sleeping in the storm. They're in the stern with a cushion. The gospel tells us. And that cushion tells you that he's totally trusting in the pillow of the sovereignty in the midst of the storm. That, that is the, 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 the perception you get when you think of Paul in Acts of the Apostle. There's a storm in the Mediterranean and God told him that he was going to witness the gospel in Rome. And so he, he looks at all the sailors. They're all, they're all getting frightened and he says, go and eat. Because God told me that I will witness in, in Rome and none of us will lose our lives. The friend, if you trust your life in Christ, He can give you peace in the storm. The promises of His word can be that anchor for your soul. In the midst of whatever doubts you face. That, you, that is the assurance of the believer. You have heaven in your heart. You know you're safe in the armor of Jesus. No matter what happens around you. That he died for you. That he gave you his Holy Spirit. That yet you might even be unaware. Like the disciples here. That even in the midst of their storm. They were almost at their destination. Through that storm. That God will fulfill his plan. And you will one day live forever in heaven with him. Friend, with this belief, you should feel as safe in the storm as in your bed. However, it is also true that unrepented sin in our life endangers assurance of faith, okay? And it makes you sink like in the water of pilgrim progress. I think of the river of death 
That is the final testing of the believer. And some of us are getting to that level of that final testing before eternity comes, okay? And this, these words in the text says, You will find your step deeper or shallower as you believe in the superiority of the king. And there pilgrim comes and jumps into the water. And there's this, you know, dragon, Satan, that is trying to get him. But the blood of Christ protects him. The promise. Uh, friends, there's plenty of thoughts that are seeking to threaten us to sink in doubt. Plenty of fears that can come to you and, and you must cast them away and hold on to Jesus' promise. He will hold me fast. Okay? But if this is already hard for the believing... That even the believer can get shaken by doubt from time to time. How do you think it will be for an unbeliever who has absolutely nothing and no one to hold on to? Or maybe he thinks that he's holding on to Jesus where he's, in fact, he's not. Friend, the same exact words, it is I, from the words of the Savior, they become a true terror for those who are wicked. Think of the guards who sought to arrest Jesus at night on the Garden of Gethsemane. They come to Jesus, and what do they say to Jesus? The first word is, Jesus tells him, it is I. But this time, as soon as, you know, they're there at night, they want to arrest Jesus. As soon as he said those same words, it is I, I am, they fell on the ground, caught in their sin before the presence of the Creator. This assurance, friend, it is I, do not be afraid, is exclusively owned by the true believer, true follower of Christ, not those who hate Christ, like the Jewish leaders we saw in previous weeks who worked in the dark against the true children of God. Friend, if you lack this assurance, you're like in a boat lost at sea because of your own sin. And this is the time for you to call out to the sleeping master. And he says, like the disciples, save us, O Lord, because I'm perishing. And that means also to drop your sin into the water. Lest you want to sink down to those waters, holding on to your self-assurance. And you make this one act of faith, even little and surrounded by doubts. But you do, you cast the anchor on God's promise in his word that he can save you no matter how wretched you are. That you realize if you have Christ like Peter, though in the midst of these doubts and even your shortcomings, he can pick you up. And no one, friend, not even the devil, not even this trial or this persecution or this affliction or this shortcoming can snatch you from the Father's hand. Not only that, but think of your worst experiences in life as something over which God rules over it. He brought it into your life by His providence. That if you are His child, you will make it through it. Though in the moment you are right there and it seems impossible like it felt for the disciples. And at the end of the story, you, you reach the shore and you, you'll be shocked of how the Lord brought you through this. As you like in the disciple when they arrive safe and sound at the destination in Capernaum. They look back and they have a story to tell. That you trust God in the midst of it. That He'll guide the boat in the exact spot it needs to go and your journey. And you will realize that no split second, no detour in life, no danger was wasted. And that's why. That's how it looks like 
to look to Christ till the storm passes by. So let me conclude. That as we see Jesus walks on water here, it makes me think of the words of the psalmist. Let us look to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 says in verse 23 to 32, these words, Those who go down to the sea ship in ships, who do businesses on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. And are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that man should give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt Him also in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the company of the elders. So let me leave with you with this final invitation, friend. Just as if you were there with the disciples in that boat that night, that may you be led by the Spirit toward Jesus. Yes, even in the reality of this uncertain and turbulent times and lives that we might have to go through. Will you now, symbolically, like Peter, dare to come out of your boat? To come out of the boat, let me explain what that means. Figuratively, points to your life to a change of mindset. That's, there is a turning around that no matter how dark, no matter how tall the waves, no matter how the wind may blow against you, you give up control. Over your life. You give up control over your situation. All that we need is raw faith. You willingly receive Christ. You trust this word. You let him save you. From drowning in your sin. You leave the problems of your life to Jesus. And just trust him to take care of them. Yes there might be fears. There might be sinking. And Jesus might have to pick you back. From time to time. But you still act. And you walk over it with your feet. You realize that actually, despite the storm, He leads you through safely to a better destination in, in the better shores of heaven. But to stay in the boat here and sink under the water, we could think of that as pointing of our life that you seek safety only in yourself, in your judgment. You try to handle the storm of life on your own. I got this. And you're not actually trusting the Lord. You live life according to your understanding. You're unwilling to embrace what's uncomfortable. And Jesus has not yet come to you. You don't welcome him. Or worse, you see Jesus and he remains a terrifying sight because you know you got sin. And you stay in the boat. However, if you stay in that boat, it means you will sink down to a very different destination, friend. That will not be the shores better shores of heaven that will mean that your unbelief will lead you to the abyss of hell okay may that now be you this morning answer to the call of the gospel which means to have faith and hold trust even upon these waters of judgment that jesus christ died for me he paid for my sin you step into this unknown, uncomfortable. Yes, you can fall and struggle, but you pray, you look to Jesus. And in fact, 
So think of this story. I was reminded of uh, the words of this Christian song, okay? Therefore, I think it's a decade. An entire decade, this Christian song was on the top Christian chart. And it was on the billboard and what was called Ocean, okay? And it was taken from this sto- story. I'm now, I'm, I see this as an illustration. I'm not suggesting now you start to listen to everything that comes out of the band that this Ocean's. But there's, there's something that... Why would this song, like few others, resonate to the hearts of everywhere around the world? I mean, you read the stories. There were people from all sorts of walks of life, whether a person who lost a son by drowning and listened to this song, whether it was a family facing life changes, whether it's a backsliding Christian brought back, whether a missionary somewhere needing boldness to proceed in his witness. I want to say this should be surprising, okay? Why so many people couldn't get enough to listen to this song for a decade? Because it is in tune with this passage which strikes a nerve, okay? Without faith in Christ grants you a peace that is beyond any human understanding. That there you face deep stormy oceans, anxieties, fears, hopelessness, depression, despair, whatever it is. The key that seems to help people to make it through is to lift your eyes because your help comes from the Lord. That if the Lord, as another psalm says, would have not been on our sides, then the waters would have swept over our soul. You look to Jesus, therefore, with confident trust, no matter what uncharted waters you may have to go through. Is it what it says in this song? Spirit leads me when my trust is with us, with our borders. Let me walk upon the waters, wherever you will call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Let us pray. Oh God, we.